Lord, we ask you to bless this time as we look at your word. We ask you to guide and lead us as we study your word. Show us what you want us to see through this time. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. First Chronicles chapter 29. David has been talking about the gifts and everything that have uh, been prepared for the tabernacle. He's ordered the service of the tabernacle. He's ordered the singers, the priest, all these things. And now we're going to have David's goodbye. <laughs> He's, he's getting ready to die. Uh, his 40 years of reign is almost over. So chapter 29, verse 1. Furthermore, David, the king, said unto all the congregation, Solomon, my son, who alone God hath chosen, is yet young and tender, and the work is great, for the palace is not for man, but for the Lord God. Now I have prepared with all my might for the house of the of, of my God, the gold for things to be made of gold, the silver of things of silver, the brass of things for silver, the iron for things of iron, the wood for things of wood, onyx stones and stones to be set, glistening stones and, the, the, uh, and of diverse colors, and all manner of precious stones and marble stones in abundance. Moreover, because I have set my affection to the house of my God, I have of my own prop proper good of gold and silver which I have given to the house of my God over and above that which I have prepared for the holy house th even 3,000 talents of gold of the gold of Ophir and 7,000 talents of refined silver to overlay the walls of this houses wherewith the gold for things of gold the silver for things of silver and for all manner of work to be made by the hands of the artif artificers and who then is willing to consecrate his service this day unto the Lord? So we're going to look at this. This is David. He's getting to the end of his message. Um, David says, you know, Solomon, my son, who alone God hath chosen, is yet young and tender, and the work is great, for the, for the palace is not for man, but for the Lord God. So here he's saying Solomon is very young. Now in Second Chronicles 1, Solomon is saying when he answers God, I am but a child. <laughs> we believe that Solomon was somewhere around 20 to 24 years old when he took the throne, all right, uh, as, as the king. So it's kind of interesting that he's being described as, as young. I believe David kind of thought that uh, Solomon was maybe little, quite inexperienced. Solomon is not a man of action like David is. David's a warrior. He's been, you know, he's the... Uh, shoot first and ask questions later type of person. You know, he's, he, he acts and then he, you know, then he will, you know, figure out, he'll, he'll pray. Solomon, I think, is more contemplative. He's more of a thought, thought process. And I think David has some, you know, little misgivings about him. You know, not that he isn't going to be able to do it, but he's not the same, he doesn't have the same personality that David does. And he says he's young and the word tender, um, you know, he's timid, he's gentle of, of words. So this is what he's talking about. You know, he is more gentle. David is a take charge guy. Once he makes his decision, it is, you know, guns blazing, we're going to get it done. I don't think he sees that in Solomon. And we, you know, we don't see this in Solomon. Solomon is going to be raised in a time of peace. He takes the throne during peace and he has relative peace his entire kingdom. He is not somebody that has to make quick decisions. And this is something that is, there's certain leaders that are just good at making quick decisions. So there's other leaders that are good for times when quick decisions aren't going to be the key. Uh, and he says, the work is great for the palace or the temple or the uh, large building is not for man, but for the Lord God. David has been repeating this sentence now for several paragraphs. It is for God. And his point being is whatever we build has to honor God. And this is something that has been, we see this even in Christian circles. Right now, we're in a time where churches don't build great big edifices and everything because they're going, we're responsible for God's money and we have to plug it into evangelism and we can't build these beautiful buildings. There was a time, and not so far back, where people were saying, we need to build these great big buildings because we're building them for God. You know, not that they were saying all the rest of what we say is today was bad. They're just saying, we need to build beautiful, huge buildings with stained glass windows and, 
and huge decorations. And this is what David is saying. We, we're building God's building. We need to build something that is worthy of God. And we see this all through. If you look back over the churches, you'll see this up and down pattern where great big edifices are going in. And people go, well, we wasted a whole lot of money building that thing. We need to be spending all our money on reaching out to the people. And then we start going, well, look at our buildings. They're so, they're so junky. We need things that really glorify. And there's this pattern of going up and down, back and forth. David kind of set the pattern saying, we need, we're building for God. Let's build a building that we can say, ha, this is, this is our God's. And that's his, that's his plan on it. And David said in verse 2, Now I have prepared or made ready with all my might for the house of God the gold things to be made with gold, and then he goes silver, brass, uh, iron, wood, onyx. You know, so he says, and he's saying out of his own pocket he has done this. Right? He has put aside gold, silver, brass, iron. And we know that we read this, and David has been, he's already had all the rocks laid out the you know the, the rocks are all numbered for the building and they're all set to go the the plans out there he's got all the wood that they need to put in there he's put away silver he goes i have prepared everything he goes i am so excited about this building that god won't let me build i'm going to make it really easy on solomon Yeah, that would kind of be true that the London Bridge came to Havasu all numbered in the order things were in. So probably the same type of thing. He had everything all set, ready to go, numbered, ready to, ready to go. All they had to do is, it was a prefab building. They had to put everything back together. Not quite prefab, but you know, everything was right there. The, everything was set to go. And that was what David is saying. He goes, and not only have I put the stones, he goes, I've got precious stones and marbles in abundance. Marble stones in abundance. All this stuff had been quarried and was ready to go. David, David wanted to build this building. And Nathan, originally, if you remember, he, he was talking to Nathan the prophet, and Nathan, Nathan's original point was, hey, that sounds like a great idea, David. Go and do what you want. And he started going home, and God said, go back and tell David he's not building the building. He's not building me a temple. And gave him this long, long speech about him being a man of blood and and that God never asked for a building in the first place. He was happy being in tents, uh, you know, which he didn't, in, in, didn't live in anyway. And uh, so David goes, okay, I can't build it. I'm going to make it so easy that they're going to get this done. And verse 3 says, Moreover, because I have set my affection to the house of God, I have made my own proper gold uh, good. So he's taken from his own resources. Now, David had taken all the, bat all the booty that belonged to the king for the last several years and put it into the treasury of the, of the temple. So everything that was going to him from battles went to be dedicated to God. And then he said, oh, and by the way, from my own resources, I have added to this. Not just that battle, but from his own resources, he added to this. And it says, I have given to the house of my God over and above that I have prepared for the, for the holy house. Verse 4, even 3,000 talents of gold, of the gold of Ophir. Now that probably doesn't mean anything to you, but Ophir was some of the best gold that was available. 3,000 talents of gold is about 112,000 pounds of gold. At today's value, that's $3.2 billion worth of gold. That's a lot of gold. This wasn't all the gold that was in the temple. This was David's gift over and above everything that he had gained from his battles. Okay, this is a lot of gold. All right. Um, and he says 7,000 7, talents of silver. That's a, that's a mere 238, approximately 238,000 pounds of silver. Now remember, this is David's gift. Not, not, his, not the gift from the kingdom. This is what David had in his personal treasury that he's given to God. All right? Um, and all of this was to overlay the house with silver and gold. 
So we have a whole lot of gold coming into this temple, a whole lot of silver. And that doesn't count the rock and the, and the wood and all the gold and silver that he's donated from the battles. Uh, so this is his, his gift. And then he ends verse 5 with, and who is willing to consecrate their ser- his service this day to the Lord? In other words, he's saying all the, all the elders, all the, all the bigwigs are there. And he goes, okay, who's going to match me? You know, who is going to, well, not necessarily match, but who is going to give? All right, I've, I've started this. And oftentimes this is how a fundraiser will start. Somebody will say, okay, I have believe in this. I believe in it so much that this is what I've given. What are you all going to give? And that's what David is basically saying at this point. This is what I've given. What will you all give to build this beautiful house of God? And so we're going to go to verse 6. Then the chief of the fathers and the princes of the tribes of Israel and the captains of thousands and hundreds and the rulers of the king's house offered willingly. They gave for the service of the house of the Lord gold 5,000 talents and 10,000 drams and of silver 10,000 talents of brass 18,000 talents and 100,000 talents of iron. And they of whom precious stones were found gave them to the treasury of the house of the Lord by the hand of Jehi. El, the Gershonite, then the people rejoiced for they had offered willingly because with perfect heart they offered willingly to the Lord and David the king also rejoiced with great joy. All right, the people responded. All right, Um, the leaders it says were there um, and it says, and I love it at the end of verse six, they offered willingly. They were excited. Their king has set an example. They're going to build a temple to God. This is a time when the people are worshiping God because David, for 40 years, has been worshiping God and the people have responded in like kind. Before that, Saul was in charge and the people weren't worshiping God very much. Not not that they weren't at all, but there was no excitement to worship God because their king wasn't excited. David excitedly wants to worship God. He wants to build this temple and you know, one thing about it is when somebody is excited about something, people get excited along with them. Now, if somebody just says, well, you need to be doing this and you need to do this just because but there's no excitement, nobody gets excited. David is excited and the people willingly gave. This is kind of the same picture we have when the children of Israel in, at Mount Sinai, when Moses came down and said, this is what God wants. And it said they gave willingly with abundance. It's one of the few places where where we're told that they had to ask people to quit giving. There was so much stuff that Moses said, was told by the workers, we have too much stuff to build this tabernacle. Tell the people to quit giving. I would not mind having a church where we have to tell you all to quit giving giving your tithe. We're nowhere close to that at this point in time. And in the second temple, we see the same thing. They had to say, quit giving, we've got enough. This one, we don't see that, but it seems like they gave an abundance and then, and and plus. But we don't read that they said, stop giving, we've got too much. Uh, But it says, they responded willingly. They offered 5,000 talents of gold and 10 drams, which is approximately uh, 170,000 pounds of gold. So they outgave David, but it took the entire nation to outgive David. Uh, so again, we're at about $4.8 billion worth of gold that they give. So right now we're sitting at about uh, $8, 000, uh, $8 billion worth of gold for the temple just on these two. This does not count what David gave as king. You know, it just counts what he gave himself and the people gave. Plus, plus. So probably 10 to $12 billion worth of gold goes into this building by today's standards. Still a lot of gold. All right, we're looking at uh, almost uh, 300,000 pounds of gold just with these two, with David and the people. All right, that's a lot of gold. And this, it, this is why when, when Solomon builds the temple, Gold is over everything. The entire building is covered in gold. The floor is covered with gold. The, the roof is covered with gold. Everything is covered with gold because there's so much gold to put on it. 
and the people gave 10,000 ta uh, 10, talents of silver or approximately 340,000 pounds of silver. All right, uh, about $64 million worth of silver. So we have a whole lot of silver and gold being put in here, about 600,000 uh, pounds of silver is dedicated to the temple, not counting David's gift as king. All right, we have a huge amount of this stuff. Of the iron, they give about 612,000 pounds of iron. And all they used the iron for were hinges and nails. <laughs> so there's a lot of iron <laughs> in this building. All right, and of brass, oh, excuse me, the, I got into the wrong order here. Uh, brass was 613, uh, 612,000 pounds and iron was over three and a half million pounds of iron. We have a lot of material being put together. This was going to be, and you think about this, if you've ever seen any of the pictures of palaces and, and cathedrals and everything, multiply it so much more by Solomon's temple. And some of those buildings are beautiful. The cameras go through and they show you all these things that if you've been to any of them, they're, they're gorgeous. This one was going to have more stuff than any of those ever had. So they had a way to mine all this stuff? Huh? So they, had, they, they obviously knew a way to mine all this stuff? Obviously there was a way to mine it. it was, they, were, they were pulling from, from mines someplace. Most of the gold, we believe, came from mines out of in India and Africa. Uh, maybe, maybe things were more abundant and easier to get to than they were nowadays. You know, I don't know. But these, these pounds, I'm going to say, a lot of people, well, there's not that much gold and silver and, and iron and stuff in the world. I'm going, well, God said there was, so I believe there was. Uh, and you think about, you know, not so long ago, the 1500s, 1600s, we were shipping gold out of South America on ships. You know, hundreds and hundreds of ships going back and forth to Europe with full of gold. Uh, so there's gold. Some of it got sunk in the ocean, but <laughs> there's gold. Uh, some of it has been burned up. Some of it has been, you know, if you think about even in our day, do you realize how much gold we waste? There's gold in almost every piece of electronic equipment and silver in almost every piece of electronic equipment, and then we throw it away to bury it <laughs> for somebody else sometime in the future to dig it up and say, look at all this gold. Uh, so I believe that God said it. It's true. There's a lot of gold, a lot of iron, and did every single pound of this go into the temple? I don't know. The building was not that big, but it would have been gorgeous. You know, totally overlaid with all of this gold. And then it says in verse 8, and anybody who had precious stones gave them, gave them to them so they could decorate the temple. They were saying, we want God to have a house that is worthy of the God of the universe. I can't even begin to picture what this place looked like. Because I've seen some build, you know, beautiful buildings. I've been in some beautiful buildings over the years. I've seen the, the films of some of these, bu these buildings. And this one would have made all of them <laughs> look like nothing. All right? And so we see all this. And then verse says, and the people rejoiced for that they offered willingly because with perfect heart they offered willingly to the Lord and David the king rejoiced greatly. Can you imagine what David's looking at? The people have responded. They have outgiven him. And you're looking at him going, all right, God, this is going to be beautiful. This is going to be perfect. No. The second temple wasn't anything like this one, so when they rebuild it, it won't be anything, they won't be anything of this beauty and this gauge. Now, will it have beauty? I'm sure it'll have beauty. They're building a temple for God. But it's said when they built the second one in uh, Nehemiah or Ezra, I can't remember which one, it said the, pe the older people wept when they saw the new, yeah, the new temple because it was so inferior to the previous one. Um, it will not surprise me if the next temple goes up is not a prefab temple that goes up very quickly because the Jews want it up so quickly. 
Will it be totally without beauty? I doubt that, but I don't think it's going to be anything. It won't be anything like this one. No. No, it doesn't. It doesn't mean anything to God necessarily. It's man's. What the beauty is, man trying to show God that we care, that we want to build something beautiful for Him. And this is why I'm saying, in history, we watch the churches. The church age has done the same thing. There's times when people say, "We just got to build beautiful buildings because we are building these for God." Not that God cares, but we're we want to show Him by the beauty of the building. And then we get to the next generation that says, "Well, we wasted way too much money on that. We're just going to." build a building where we can worship God. Which way the Jews will go with the third temple, I don't know. Uh, but it, nothing, nothing is ever going to be of this quality you know, anywhere out there. Solomon built a building that was a rival to nothing else. It was a jewel of all temples through history. The third temple? Yeah. Because yeah. he's going to walk into it three and a half years in and declare that he's God and say, worship me. Well, I don't know if it's in his plan. It's in God's plan. God said it's going to happen. Now, who's, who's the one that wants it to happen? I don't know. It doesn't really matter. Probably Satan is the one that wants it to happen uh, because he's going to step into that and say, I'm God. Uh, even, even though if I was him, I wouldn't because God said so, so I wouldn't do it, but, <laughs> but he's going to do it anyway. So... Uh, I don't know why Satan does most of what he does because when God says he's going to do it, he still does it is kind of a strange, strange thing. But why do we do things wrong when, when we know better and we know what God says and we still do what's wrong? So it, it's just the way it is. Sin blinds us to, to what's going on. And yeah, well, it's sin nature anyway. So, so here we have all of this beauty, all of this wealth, going into this building and it's a building that is going to be second to none anywhere in all of history for all practical purposes and there have been some beautiful temples beautiful activities but this one is so beautiful you have a comment samuel it's a measuring unit yes yeah, smaller than a smaller than a talent so, yep. Okay. Verse 10. Wherefore David blessed the Lord before all the congregation, and David said, Blessed be you, O Lord God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. Thine, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty, for all that is in the heaven and in the earth is, your, is in your kingdom. O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all, both riches and honor come to you, and you reign over all, and in your hand is power and might, and in your hand is to make great and to give strength unto all. Now, therefore, our God, we thank you and praise you, your glorious name. But who am I and what is my people that we should be able to offer so willingly after this sort? For all things come from you and your own have we given you for we are strangers before you and sojourners as were our fathers our days on earth are as a shadow and there is none abiding O Lord our God all this store that we have prepared to build you a house for your holy name comes from of your hand and is all your own <clears throat> I know also my God that you try the heart and have pleasure in uprightness as for me in the uprightness of my heart have I been willingly offered all these things, and now I have seen with joy your people, which are present here, to offer willingly unto you. O Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, our fathers, keep this forever in the, in the imagination of the thoughts of the heart of your people, and prepare their hearts unto you. And give unto Solomon, my son, a perfect heart to keep your commandments your testimonies and your statutes, and to do all these things to build this palace for the which I have made provision. All right, so here's David's prayer. Now David's turning. He's seen, he's said, here's my gift. He's watched the people give, and now he is looking to God and praising God. And I love this. He goes, 
Verse 10, Wherefore David blessed the Lord before the congregation, and David said, Blessed be you, Lord God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. God, you are to be blessed. God does not change, ever. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And he's going to be in power forever. And he's not going to lose that power. Nobody's ever going to take it from him. There's not another God out there that was going to even challenge him because there is no other God out there. So he can't lose his power. And David is saying, God, you are, you, you, you're, you're the man. <laughs> he says, you, O Lord, is the, your, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory, the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heaven and the earth is yours. Your, yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you have, are exalted as head above all. Here's David just reiterating who God is. Have you ever taken time in your prayers to celebrate who God is? That's a common theme. Of, David did it. Daniel did it. Moses did it. It's a common theme amongst people just to praise God for who he is. Because we're recognizing him that he is. And here David says, yours is the greatness. Everything great belongs to God. You are the power. There is no power without God. You are the glory, the splendor, the shining, and the victory. Do we really see God as our victory? This is something we need to really work on being able to see. God is victorious, and because we're his children, we are victorious. We need to really start seeing God, and this is why these kind of prayers are good. God, you are all these things. And you know what? I'm your child. They belong to me as well. Probably not enough. Probably not enough. But we need to. We really do need to. And this is going to become even more important as we get closer and closer to the end days. When all hell breaks loose against us, we need to come back to the fact that, God, you're still in charge. You're still all-powerful. You're still glorious, and you're still victorious. And you're not going to lose. And because I'm your child, I don't lose and I'm powerful and I'm victorious. We need to begin to understand all of this attitude about God is that because he is all these things and we are his bride and his children, we are all those things also. And the more we understand that, the better off we're going to be. Because times are going to get rough. Times are going to get hard. You know, we will st start suffering for our faith. We will start suffering for our walk. And we need to be able to remember that God is in charge. He is the one that's still there. He says, and the majesty, the kingly position, he's above everything. For all that is in the earth, heaven and in the earth is yours. So he says, we're just giving you back what you gave us. All this stuff that we're giving was yours to begin with. Which needs to be our attitude. Too many times we as Christians start thinking, look at all the stuff I own. Technically, we don't own anything. It's all God's. So when we give back tithes and offerings to God, we're just giving him back what he has given us to take care of. And that's not saying we can't have nice houses and nice cars and nice clothes and all that stuff. But if we never are satisfied with what we have, then we will never be able to give generously to God. Because I have to be able to say, God, I'm happy with what I have. I'm going to just pile back to you. And, you know, the question is that I have for people is, I truly believe, and I'm not the one that said it originally, that you can't outgive God. When you give to God, he blesses back in return. You know, and the question is, most people just go give, want to give God the leftovers. God, after I paid all my bills, after I paid all my good, all my fun stuff, then I'll give you whatever's left over. The only problem is that what's left over is usually nothing. And in our day and age is less than nothing because we owe everybody all the, all the credit that we had, had, had to have fun with. And we go, God, you get all the leftovers. By the way, God, it's negative 20, so you've got to give me some more just to get you, get you a gift, God. That's not what we're supposed to do. God says, I want my tithes and offerings. And he asks for the tithes and the first fruits. He wants it up front. 
When I get my paycheck, the first thing I do is I write my tithes and offerings off my check and I give that. And then I go, okay, God, now how do I pay my bills? You got your part, now I'm going to worry about how to pay the bills. And he blesses and I don't have to worry about paying the bills. So we need to have done that. And this is what he's saying. Everything belongs to you. Yours is the kingdom. So David's saying, it's my kingdom, but God, it's yours. And you are exalted as head over all things. God is the one that rules. He is sovereign. And again, when we're in America, we don't really understand the terms of sovereignty and lordship and master. Because... We, we are independent spirits. We don't like our government. We, re, we replace them every two, four, or six years. You know, that's our opportunity to vote them out of office. We don't like you. You're gone. God is king. You can't get rid of the king. And he is the sovereign king. He is not going to be voted out of office. He does not share his power with a house of parliament and a, a house of lords or anybody else. He says, I am God. I am in charge. Now, the good thing is that he is a benevolent dictator, which is good. We want benevolent. That means he cares for us. The problem with most American dict uh, human dictators is they're malevolent dictatorships. They're in it for them, and they will abuse the people. God is, loves us so much, he's going to take care of his people because of how much he loves us. All right. Uh, both riches and honor come from you. You reign over all, and, your hand is, and in your hand is power and might. And in your hand is to make great and to give strength unto all. So he says, God, you provide the riches and the honor. David had a fortune to give to God, and he still didn't. He still had a fortune after he gave it away. This is something that is so unusual to us. By human nature, we'd say, I can't give all my money to God and then expect to get. Some of the greatest millionaires in America were Christians that gave God 90% of their, of their uh, income, and they were still millionaires. They had a lot of money left over. That means that they were technically, by today's standards, billionaires. But they just kept giving God 10% of everything they made, and they would have all this money left over that God blessed back. He'd go, oh, you're giving me money? Oh, here, have some more. I'm not at, at 90% giving. <laughs> I don't make that kind of money. I don't have the faith to give 90% of giving at the moment. All right? I am over 10%, but I don't have the faith to go to 90. <laughs> but who knows? Maybe someday God will say, increase it even more. I don't know. We'll see what he says because everything comes from him and he reigns over all. And it says, in his hand is power and might. And in his hand is the power to make great. You know, how many people think that they have made themselves great. They have made themselves strong. They have only been able to do what God allows them to do. We would have nothing if God did not allow it. And it's amazing to me sometimes when he lets these ungodly people get all the stuff that they get, and it's like, God, why would you let that happen? But in most cases, when you really start looking at those people, you look at their history, you look at where they're at, they're miserable. They think that their wealth is going to make them happy, so God lets them get all the wealth that they can to show them that wealth isn't what's going to make them happy. And this is what Solomon tells us in Ecclesiastes. He says, wealth isn't it. Buildings, having buildings named after you isn't. Having all these big things having it. Having all the alcohol you want. Having all the drugs you want. None of it is going to satisfy. And God lets people get everything they think they want just to show them that they're still not going to be satisfied there's a god-shaped hole in everybody's heart and only god can fill it and it doesn't matter what we try to fill a god-shaped hole with it's not enough because god is infinite and only god can fill that god-shaped hole in people's hearts and people will never be happy with truly happy long term yes they'll be happy you, you know and we all know what it's like you get a brand new car and you're happy with the car for a while until your best friend or, or neighbor gets something better and then you're no longer happy. You're happy with the, the new house until the uh, 20th year payments are still coming in. <laughs> or even 10 year payment, you know, 10 years in or a year in and the payments are starting to drag down your joy of the house. And then the repairs start on the house. And, you know, and all of these things that happen, 
Sin has pleasure for a moment. Otherwise, we wouldn't sin. There's always pleasure in sin for a short period of time. And then people pull back and say, it's not what I thought it was going to be. It's not, it's not good. And here, David said, all of this belongs to God. You make people great. You, you're the one that gives the strength. This is the beautiful part. I love walking with God. No matter what has happened in my life, when I sit back and just recognize that God is there, I've had strength to get through the problems. And it's a beautiful, I do not know how the lost get by at all in life. Without God, I have no idea how they can even begin to, and yet they do. Miserably, not happily, you know, and I look at them going, it must be sad to live without God. Because I can't imagine, I've been saved for, you know, for 50 years now, and I can't imagine living without God at all. And, you know, and we see this going on. Says verse 13, now therefore, our God, we thank you and praise your glorious name. And now goes, now David gets into a little bit of humility, but who am I and what is my people that we should be able to offer so willingly after this sort? Of all the things, or all things come from you, and of your own we have given you. So David's saying, We have just given you back what you've given us, and who are we to even be able to give back to you? You know, why are we so blessed? And this really gives an idea of how blessed the people are. They were able to give, you know, what was it, 300,000 pounds of gold to God to build his temple. That is a lot of gold. And no matter what year, no matter what age you're in, that's a lot of gold. And they're going, and David's saying, who are we to be able to do this? You know, God, we're just your children and you have blessed us so greatly with this kind of blessing that we're able to now abundantly give back to you. Verse 14, 15. For we are strangers before you and sojourners as were our fathers. Our days on earth are as a shadow and there is none abiding. We are sojourners. We're just passing through this land. We as Christians have to really get that into our heads. This world is not our home. If we are happy and settled in this world, there's something wrong with us. Not that it's a bad world. Don't get me wrong. It's not, it's not that it's a bad world, but it's not home. I have been in lots of places in my lifetime. I've done lots of visiting, but when you're away on a trip, it's not home. You may be in a nice, comfortable hotel, eating at nice restaurants, but it's not home. There's something special about when you get home, and it's your own house, your own bed, your own kitchen. And maybe it's not as nice as some of the places, but it is home. Our home is heaven. And heaven will make the best places you've ever stayed and, and visited look like slums. <laughs> you stayed at the five-star hotel, and when you reach heaven, you'll go back. That five-star hotel was a slum. It was a total disaster compared to where I'm at. That's saying a lot. Because <laughs> I've, I've actually stayed in some pretty nice places you know, over, over some things. And to think that heaven will make those look like, you know, nothing. And here's David saying that same thing. And he says, we are a, our days on earth is a shadow. Come and gone. Another place that tells us that our days are like grass. Grass comes up and the sun comes down and withers it, or comes up and withers it and it's gone. This is how short, and this is very important for us. We as human beings seem to think that we are the most important thing that has ever existed. God is the number one. And we cannot do anything in our lifetime that is going to ultimately impact all of history. Now, there have been some big events that have really been huge in history. But how many of us really know the details of those events? You know, we, we know something like Christopher Columbus crossing the crossing the Atlantic Ocean. Do you know all that went into that, that voyage? Do you know all of the times that he tried to convince people that he knew the world was round and that, that it was going to be? Do you know how his sailors were ready to mutiny before they found land and he was said, okay, just give me one more day. He was gambling on one more day of seeing land. And they were ready to throw him off the ship. 
And yet we don't remember all the other details of this story. All through history, we, don't, we remember certain bits and pieces of it. And then there's bits, pieces of history that were important in their day that we don't remember at all. Now, how many of us know anything that our grandparents or great-grandparents or great-great-grandparents did? Most of us are not that fam- don't have that famous of a family member to say, well, my, my great-great-granddad was <laughs> you know, this position, and you all know about this position. No, I don't think anybody in this room has somebody that, great, you know, that famous. Now, they may have done something really big in their day, and everybody knew, and their next generation knew. But I'm, what I'm saying is it gets taken away so short because even the memory of us is short. You know, we think about people like Napoleon, Alexander the Great, Julius Caesar. We don't know anything about, hardly anything about them unless you've studied them a little bit. And I know some of their battles because I've studied battles, but that's about all I know of them. You know, and so how fast you get forgotten. And David is saying, we're just, we're just a shadow. We're just on here for a moment. And this shadow really is coming from the idea of the, of the um, sundial. It, it passes and it's gone and the next day starts and, it get, and it's gone and, and he's saying it disappears so fast. And he goes, that's all we are. We're strangers. It says, oh Lord our God, all this store that we have prepared to build you a house for your holy name comes of your hand and is all yours. <laughs> God, it was all yours, and we're giving it back to you. I love this prayer. I love this prayer. God, we're just giving back what you gave us. I know also, my God, that you try the hearts, and you have pleasure in uprightness. So this try means to prove. It means to refine, to to see what is absolutely true in there. One of the problems we have as human beings is we lie to ourselves. And we like to tell, tell ourselves how good we are, Forget about all the things that we didn't do. And David is saying, God, you put us through the fire. You're, you're going to prove to us who we are. Why do we go through the trials that we go through? Not so God can know anything about us. He already knows. He puts us in the fire because we go into the saying, God, I will trust you no matter what. God says, okay, let's see. We'll put you in the middle of a big trial and see if you truly try, you know, Are you going to believe me and trust me just like you said you will? And unfortunately, so many times we fail. That's all of what God is. God tries us and says, do you really mean what you think you mean? Are you really going to stand for me? And he tries us, and he has pleasure in the upright. And David says, in the uprightness of my heart, I have willingly offered all these things, and now I have seen, the, I have seen with joy your people, which are present here, to offer willingly unto you. So he's saying, God, I, I gave you out of my players, but I'm taking even greater pleasure that my people are offering to you. One of the greatest joys I have as a pastor is to watch people grow and start developing toward God and becoming more and more faithful to God and stronger in their, in their belief with God. That is where I take my joy. You know, saying, God, you have really done some great things in this person's life and this person's life. And notice I say, God, you have done it because even though I get the pleasure of teaching, I'm not the one doing it. I just get to be a conduit that does the teaching and then I watch what other people do with that teaching and saying, God, you are doing such great things. And this is what David's saying. God, I take such pleasure. My people are honoring you. They are lifting up. They are going above even what I have done. Look at what they have done because they didn't have as much to give you and yet they outgave me. And this is the good news. We're always looking for somebody to do better and to grow stronger and to be moving beyond. And this is what David is saying. They have given. And God, I'm just rejoicing. Look at what they gave you. Oh, God, I gave you all of this, but look what they have given you. And this is his, his whole view. And then he says, now he, then he turns and he starts praying he says, and the Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, our father, keep this forever in the imagination or the thoughts, the deep thoughts, the imaginations, the deep thoughts of, of the thoughts of the heart of your people and prepare their heart unto you. So David's saying, God, help them always remember this. Remember their joy. Remember their generosity. 
And when they use the word imaginations, it's the whole idea of the purposes and the de devices. They're, they're deep thoughts, not just their conscious thought. And let them go forward. And then he says in verse 19, And gives unto Solomon, my son, a perfect heart to keep your commandments, your testimonies, your stat statutes, and to do all these things, and to build this palace or temple which I have made provisions. So now he's turning to Solomon and said, God, keep Solomon. I am getting to the end of my, my career. I'm almost done. Keep Solomon's heart. Unfortunately, this was not a prayer that was answered. Solomon's heart did shift away from God as he started building temples for his wives and, and their gods, and he started slipping away, but he did return. So the prayer ultimately was answered, but he didn't have the perfect heart that stayed with God constantly. All right, verse 20. And David said to all the congregation, Now bless the Lord your God, and all the congregation blessed the Lord their God of their fathers, and bowed down their heads, and worshiped the Lord and and the king. And they sacrificed sacrifices unto the Lord, and offered burnt offerings unto the Lord on the morrow after that day, even a thousand bullocks, a thousand rams, a thousand lambs, with their drink offerings, and the sacrifice in abundance of all of Israel, and did eat and drink before the Lord on that day with the great gladness. And they made Solomon the son of David king a second time, and anointed him unto the Lord to be their chief governor, and Zadok to be, to be priest. Then Solomon sat on the throne of the Lord as king instead of David, his father, and prospered, and all Israel obeyed him. And all the princes and mighty men and all the son, sons likewise of King David submitted themselves unto Solomon the king. And the Lord magnified Solomon exceedingly in the sight of all Israel and bestowed upon him such royal majesty as, as had not been, been on any king before in Israel." So here we have a very interesting thing. David tells the congregation, worship God. He turns now to them and says, okay, I've been worshiping God. You worship God. And they started bringing sacrifices into, into the, to be given. And they've been worshiping God. They offer sacrifices. They offer burnt offerings and drink offerings. Now, remember... We talk about this several times because I try to help us remember. We as Gentiles think of, well, you just had a sacrifice. You put an animal on the altar and burnt it. There were seven different offerings that the Jews gave. The burnt offering was the least significant in one sense because it had nothing to do with sin or anything. Burnt offerings were one saying, God, I am dedicating myself completely to your service. And instead of putting myself on the altar to burn, I'm going to burn this animal. But the animal was a, a symbol of my devotion to, or the person's devotion to God. And they burnt that whole animal up. The rest of the offerings were for sin and for thanksgiving. And there were several different offerings and different parts of the animal were, were, were burnt. And some of them went back to the people. If you gave a thanksgiving animal uh, uh, offering, you got about a third to a half of the animal back. And the animal had to be eaten within 24 to 48 hours, depending on the reason that you gave it. So you went and had a big party with everybody, and you just had a big feast and, and ate that whole animal and had a big party. All right? This is the picture of it. These people are feasting. They're having Thanksgiving offerings. They're having all these things. And there's parties going on all over the place where people are eating the, the, the portion of the animal that belonged to them so that they could get it taken care of. And we read here, and they offered a thousand bullocks. Now, that's a huge cow. <laughs> a thousand rams and a thousand lambs. This is a lot of meat being, needing to be eaten quickly. Some of them were burnt offerings when the whole thing was burnt up. Some of them are Thanksgiving offerings where they're going to have to have a big feast afterwards. But there's a lot of meat going on in here, a lot of fire going on a lot of blood flowing from the, from the tabernacle. And, but it's all in the rejoicing of it. They're saying, God, we love you, and here is our gifts for you. Now, there's several hundred thousand people, so there's not a huge amount of you know, sacrifices for that many people, but there is a lot of things going on. And they did eat and drink before the Lord on that day with great gladness. They had a great joyful time. Can you imagine 
you're going to God, you're offering these things, and then there's this great big feast afterwards. We do it every month here with our end-of-the-month dinners, and people enjoy the end-of-the-month dinners, and this is kind of what they're doing. They're having an end-of-month dinner with everybody in, the, everybody in Jerusalem and Israel participating. Because <laughs> I'm sure there were other things that they brought out on these feasts. You know, there wasn't just the meat on it. This would have been breads and, and vegetables and fruits, and they were having feasts all over the place celebrating God because they remembered who they were celebrating. And then it says in verse 23, and they made Solomon the son of King David, then uh, they made Solomon the son of King of David king a second time. Now this is referring back to 1 Kings chapter 1, verses 29 through 48. David is getting old. His son, Adonijah, rebels against him. Goes to the temple, goes outside the city, and has the people declare him king. Dad's dying, dad's getting old, he's not going to be able to defend himself. He had himself declared king. Nathan and Bathsheba came to David and said, didn't you say that Solomon was going to be king? Why does Adonijah declaring himself king. So he said, okay, take Solomon to the temple and declare him king. So now you have battling kings. Uh, the one that David supports and the army supports and David's rebellious son who then runs and hides in, the nor in a kingdom to the north because he realizes that he doesn't have the support of the people at this time. He was hoping to get support and be able to usurp his position. So now the people are making Solomon king a second time, and now it's not this co-regency. David is stepping down completely, and Solomon is going to take over, because David's going to die here in just a couple, couple more verses. Uh, and it says that Solomon sat on the throne of David, his father, and prospered, and all Israel obeyed him. And then verse 24 is very key, because remember, Adonijah before was trying to split the kingdom, says all the princes and mighty men and, and, the, and sons of David submitted themselves to Solomon. Solomon is going to have peace during his lifetime because that's what God said. David, you cannot give it because you're a man of blood. You have shed too much blood. But your son will have peace in his reign. Now, one of the problems is peace is not always the great blessing that we think it is. When nations, empires have times of peace, sin starts to creep in and overwhelm that nation. Laziness overwhelms the people. In every nation, including America, the, in the end times of that nation, people are so much into having fun and enjoyment that they stop having children. And the aliens in those nations and the, and the workers in those nations start to outproduce the citizens of the nation. And they start being more than the people. We're starting to see that. The birth rate in citizens of America is barely one. And I believe the last I looked, it was negative. We're losing more citizens than we're gaining. The foreigners, the, the aliens coming in, the even legal, and I'm not even talking about the illegals, the legal ones, are having babies at great rates. And then we wonder what's going on. It historically says we're at the end of our empire. It's going to be overthrown. And that's what happened to Solomon. The idle laziness of the rich and powerful, and then people kept growing stronger and stronger underneath. And so... Even though Solomon is blessed with peace, it may not be the blessing that it is. And this is something we've always got to keep in remembrance. Every time we think we're being blessed, there's usually a dark side of a blessing that has a negative side to it. And when we're feeling like we're being cursed and, and having all these problems, the, the blessing side of it is we're seeing God's strength and his power. When we get blessed and everything's going good, we start tending to pay less attention to God. It's just a natural thing. I don't need you, God. Look at all the blessings I have. And we, don't, we would never say that, but yet we do say that in our heart. God, I've got this wonderful job. I've got cars. I've got a house. There's food in the house. I've got money in the bank. You know, you know God, I'll pray to you when I need you, but you just kind of stay out there, God. I'm, I'm happy. 
when we're going through a hard trial, what are we doing? God, help! Help! I need you. Sometimes blessings are not the great blessing that we think they are because it kind of drives us away from him. And verse 11 says, And the Lord magnified Solomon exceedingly in the sight of Israel and bestowed upon him such royal majesty as had not been on any king before him in Israel. Now, it's not a big statement here because there's only two kings before, Israel, before Solomon. And this is in time. Later on, we're going to find out that Solomon was blessed beyond any king of any time. All right, so Solomon is going to be blessed. I mean, at this particular time, there's only two kings that he's better than. That's not saying a whole lot. All right, but later on, it's going to say he was greater than all kings, all people. He's the wisest man that ever lived. Everybody in the world is coming to him for advice and answers. And we see all of that coming in. In the last couple of verses, we're going to end with this. Verse 26, Thus David, the son of Jesse, reigned over all Israel. And the time that he reigned over Israel was 40 years. Seven he reigned in Hebron, and 33 years he reigned in Jerusalem. He died of good old age, full of days and riches and honor. And Solomon his son reigned in his stead. And now the acts of David the king, first and last, behold, are they not written in the book of Samuel the seer, and in the book of Nathan the prophet, and in the book of Gad the seer, and all his reign and his might, and times that were over him, and over Israel, and over all the kingdoms of all of, of the countries. So here we just have the final statement. David reigned. He reigned for 40 years. He started reigning at age 30, according to 2 Samuel 5 verse 4. So he died at 70 years old. Pretty good age. And he reigned that whole time. You know, for, for 40 years he reigned as a good king. Building Israel's influence over all the nations. And, and then, then Solomon took over his then. And then in verse 29 it says, In the Acts of David, are they not written in the book of Samuel this year? That would be First and Second Samuel. <laughs> In case you're interested, we do have those books. Uh, and in the book of Nathan and the book of Degad, which we do not have. So we don't have those books, even though they're mentioned, we don't have those books. And then he reigned in his might and his times, went over him and over Israel and over all the kingdoms of the, king, of the countries. David's great reign. David was known to, to Israel as the greatest king that they had ever had, the most powerful king. Um, for if you're an English, if you like the English history, David was like King Arthur. You know, he was the one that started everything and moved it forward. And we're finding out that there was a real King Arthur, maybe not as great as the legends say he was, but there was a King Arthur in England that unified the nation and brought it together. David brought the 12 tribes together, put them under God, and built a kingdom that God had designed for them. So all of this was going on, and we are now done with David. We are going to go into 2 Chronicles next week, and we will start with, with uh, Solomon in that chapter, and then we, the 2 Chronicles will go through all the kings of Israel, of, of, of Judah, all over again. We just did it in 2 Kings. Now we're going to do it all again in, in 2 Chronicles. Lord, we just thank you for this day. Lord, we thank you for true worship being shown to you is help us to develop a true worship to seek you with all of our heart and to to play, rightfully place you in our heart on the throne and to recognize you as god and master and sovereign in all that we do and we thank you in jesus name amen listening friends do you know god not just know about him today is the day to decide to become his child god loves you and jesus came to die for your sins in Romans 3.23, we are told, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We all have sinned. God says the penalty for sin is death. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. We sin and deserve death and hell. However, Romans 5.8 says, But God commended his love toward us, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God loves you so much, he died for us so that we can be forgiven and have eternal life. How do we do this? Romans 10, 9-8 says that if you shall confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. For with the heart man 
believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Today is that day for you to come to God and truly know Him. Do you know Him? Do you want to know Him? Pray in your own words like this, God, I know that I am a sinner and deserve punishment. I believe that Jesus died to pay my sins. Forgive me and help me to turn from my sins and to live for you. If you have asked this of God and truly believe you are God's child and part of of his family, we encourage you to do these things. First, tell somebody that you are saved. Second, start reading the Bible each day. We recommend starting with Ephesians and then the Gospel of John. Find a good Bible teaching church. If this is your, your day of salvation, you can contact us and we will send you a booklet to get started on your new life and are available to help you with any questions you have about the Bible. You can contact us by email at office at chloridebaptistchurch.com or by mail at Chloride Baptist Church, P.O. Box 65, Chloride, Arizona 86431.